On today's podcast, Thomas Lament and I are with Sean Mayer, who is a strategic advisor for person-centred care and improvement in Scottish government. Because of the COVID pandemic, we're chatting today via Zoom. So welcome, Sean. Thank you. It's good to be here. Could you start by telling us a bit more about your role? Yeah, so currently I have uh, two half jobs. So I work uh, half time for NHS education, uh, where I work as a uh, basically as a, as a teacher or an instructor, I suppose, in the quality improvement team. So training and uh, teaching them about quality improvement methods and uh, systems thinking and basically how to do improvement, as well as doing a bit of learning and educational material development with NES. And then the other half of the job is uh, I, I work in the Scottish Government in the strategy and planning and quality team with people who are developing policy and porting them, advising them specifically around person-centred care, person-centred approaches to care, person-centred systems, and a bit of quality improvement in there as well. So two, the two roles, one a sort of more educational role and the other a sort of policy advice, support, policy translation type role. Great. And can you tell us a bit about your career journey, how you ended up in those positions? So I started my working life as a, actually, I started my working life as a, a forestry worker and had a bit of a an epiphany uh, partway through that, and uh, do, I was doing an HND in forest management and decided to do something different and ended up becoming a nurse. And I, I kind of wanted to be a pediatric nurse. That was my thought when I first started. And when, when you used to go into nursing in, in those days, you had to everybody had to do adult nursing to start with, and then you would choose your specialty thereafter. And uh, partway through that adult training, I did a spell in intensive care. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Uh, I'd like to work here. And then uh, thereafter, I spent the next 20 three years working uh, in various ICUs around Scotland, um, Glasgow Royal Infirmary for a good chunk of that time, and then uh, Falkirk, Stirling, and then latterly Fourth Valley Royal when the new Fourth Valley Royal Hospital opened. And, and during that time, I was pretty content. I thought that's what I would do for that. I was a sort of senior nurse in the, in the ICU. I thought that's what I'd do for the rest of my career. And I've been working away with, with the other colleagues in the team there, in the multidisciplinary team around doing some improvement work and we'd had various levels of success. We'd worked on things like ventilator-acquired pneumonia and central line infections. And uh, around about 2008, the patient safety program came along. And suddenly, the work that we were doing accelerated quite dramatically. And um, that was probably a sort of a trigger point for me or a, 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 an inflection point in my career. It started to take a different direction afterwards because I realized there was a whole other world out there around this, this work of how to improve um, healthcare systems and actually how to improve complex systems more, more generally. So having that understanding of, of how to do improvement helped. And at that time, I also did a, a fellowship year. And that, that, was, that was really important for me. That was kind of an opportunity to stop and think a bit as well and to un- try and understand what it was. And I think for me, the, the key factor was not really just the technical methodology, because there's lots of different te- technical methodologies. The, the, the thing that made the big difference for me there was the pause and the repurposing of our focus on people, on the people who were patients and families in the, in the ICU and on the team itself, how that team worked together and how we used this approach to get all brains on board. So everybody started to, it wasn't just the boss's job to do improvement anymore. Actually, it was everybody's job. It was, the, you know, we were taking ideas from patients, from families, from physios, from cleaners, from whoever, and uh, using this approach to this method, if you like, then to 
to test those things and, and try and get them to, to work. So, uh, and, and then from there, there was a kind of a, a gradual pivot away from working clinically in the healthcare system out into these more, more generic improvement roles focused at, at system level and uh, started to do a bit of improvement advisor work with Healthcare Improvement Scotland part-time and then eventually ended up where I am today. So I suppose to summarise <laughs> that sort of ramble, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have a great plan. If you'd asked me as recently as three or four years ago what I thought I'd be doing in three or four years, I don't think I'd describe what I'm doing now. And I think I don't, don't think I'd be able to answer that question again, actually. You know, if you ask me now, what, 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 would, what do you think you'll be doing in three or four years? I've no idea. I kind of just have tended to follow my interests try to do things that I enjoy I suppose I've always been a bit dissatisfied with the status quo I've always felt things could be better and always wanted to do something about that and uh, so I suppose my career has been guided by those principles you know do something you enjoy have fun try and make things a bit better uh, and then I've gone wherever I've had the, the most opportunity I suppose to do those things uh, rather than seeking specific positions or roles. Sean you, you've described what it sounds like a fantastically varied career pathway did you, did you have any role models so I, I i suppose there's been one or two um i i certainly there's certainly some influential nursing colleagues who you know if i if i stop and straight away think about right who who do i remember there's one or two people who really stick in my who come very quickly to the front of my mind and one one would be a lady called Alison gilchrist who was a a sister in orthopedics when I was a student nurse and the thing that struck me about Alison was that she was she was always interested in you as a person you know so I was a student nurse who was there for a few months and gone again and she was a busy lady with a busy ward to run uh, and uh, but she took a great interest in, in in every individual person so she always established a relationship uh, and she was kind you know she was kind she was connected uh, and, uh, and then overarching all of that she was very professional so she was competent she was very good at her job and she gave me some great tips, you know, about how to set out on a on a career in nursing. So I think she. So that was that was one one person uh, from my early days. Another one, perhaps my early career, once I qualified, a lady called Anne Wynn, who was a senior nurse in the intensive care unit in Glasgow Royal Infirmary, and Anne was a very smart lady, very scatty uh, as well. Uh, she was very she was fun. She's a bit naughty. But she was always interested in in trying to make things better, and I and I think I always found that in, it was she was always great to work with because she was always looking for opportunities to make things better, and uh, there was a kind of an atmosphere, a good, a very positive atmosphere whenever you work with her. And I I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if, as somebody in a role like that, you always made people like me feel like she made me feel, and you could see it wasn't just me; it was other people in the team as well. So I suppose that. That, and that, again, that's a relate. I suppose that's maybe my own personal bias, bias and preference around these these relational issues. Even at that stage, I was interested in in that side of things. And yeah, I, I, I guess I thought I would like to be be like that and have that positive effect on other people. A little bit kinder, a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more fun. And, and when you think about the world around you, and especially when you're working in the caring professions, you see there's so much suffering and pain for so many people. And then to work with that day by day is quite challenging as well. That can take a toll on you. So to be able to alleviate that in some small way each day within your sphere of influence, you know, that's a wonderful thing to aim for. And I think both of those ladies in particular helped to set me up with that kind of that ethos. So, you know, if imagine if everybody challenged themselves each day in that way to try and reduce suffering and pain a little bit and to increase 
joy and kindness a little. Well, well who knows what the world would be like? And uh, those ladies both did that in their own way each day. So I, I guess from early career, that would be my, those would be my biggest influences. Later on, well, there's so many great improvement people around the world to talk about. Maureen Bisignano is a great inspiration. I've certainly encouraged by her a lot. And she's, again, somebody who's very, very well known and famous and has a very important, has had very important senior jobs. But again, is, you know, she treats you like you're a, uh, like a, a long lost friend every time she sees you and um, is very personable. There's no sort of airs and graces there. That's probably three, three of the most influential uh, people in my world. All, all women. All women, absolutely. Of course. <laughs> yeah, um, when we spoke to Angelina Foster on the last episode and she was talking about sort of making the weather um, if you're a lead in any area and I can definitely resonate a lot mm. with what you say about, you know, the charge nurses if they're sunny personalities who are kind yeah. and compassionate and competent. It just makes for sunshine across the ward. Yeah. Great. So... I'm I'm working in intensive care at the moment, Sean, and we're quite lucky as doctors that we get a lot of time for professional development and study leave. And I hear a lot from my nursing colleagues talking about the fact that they don't really have any time for CPD and and career progression um, and and the midwifery staff as well. And it's not really so much part of their job plan. Mm. So how do you think we can empower more nurses to lead and step up into leadership roles like you mm. have? Yeah, the, those are interesting differences, aren't they, between the two different professions. The, um, you know, how that's uh, continuing professional development is, is kind of wired in, hardwired into medical careers. Whereas in nursing careers, it's kind of either your luck if you happen to get away and do a fellowship like I did, I suppose, or, um, or if you're very... You're, and if you're a self-starter, you're very motivated and you'll go off and do a lot of things in your own time. Maybe some of that's just down to historically the way the two professions have developed. Well, I think a lot of it is probably down to that. But also maybe there's some financial implications. There's a lot of nurses. So if we suddenly said nurses were going to have, you know, the equivalent of whatever, whatever it is a doctor gets, you know, a, a session a week for CPD, uh, what would that look like? How much would it cost? Um, and so on. So there's a, it's, it's challenging to think about that. I think if I think even if on a on a very basic level, if for example, you know, when when the likes of uh, yourself or, or Thomas in the in the types of professional backgrounds you come from, when you're moving into more leadership roles, you have the opportunity to keep your connection to your clinical home, if you like, you know. So you maybe you do a day a week still of clinical practice or research or something like that. And I think that opportunity doesn't tend to be, that doesn't tend to exist with nurses. And I think that that wouldn't be too difficult to do. You know, so for example, if you said to me, Sean, you can have a day a week working as a lead nurse in intensive care somewhere, I'd bite your hand off. I would love to have that opportunity to, to go and work with nurses, young, you know, young nurses who are early in their career to try and sort of spread a bit of that happiness as you were, as you were talking about and joy and uh, bring some of that, some of my experience and learning to them, but as also to be able to harvest and, and uh, take up the things, the great ideas that they'll be coming up with and be able to spread those, you know, so you've got that two-way process that could be happening there, which we're not tapping into. Uh, it's only happening in an ad hoc fashion as and when opportunities like that arrive. So I think if there was one thing that, you, that, that would be good to do, which wouldn't be too resource intensive, which wouldn't be too difficult to do, in fact, would be a huge benefit to the service, the operational part of the service would be to say to people, you know, like me working in the type, and there's quite a lot of people like me working in these types of roles, 
you know, a day a week, you, you go back and you give something back to people working in current clinical practice in the system. Uh, you maintain your own credibility and skills, but also you have the opportunity uh, and you, give, you can share with them, but also you can kind of bring back in as well and stay in touch with what's happening on the ground. That's a great idea. What, what was the fellowship that you did? So I did the Scottish Quality and Safety Fellowship year back in 2009, that was. I think I was the second cohort to do that. So that was basically a year where you had three week-long residentials where you were exposed to all, so you got some technical sort of, you know, teaching and learning in, in, the, in that period, but you also were exposed to all sorts of people from all over the world who, uh, who were very inspirational, who were very knowledgeable. And connected into networks all over, not only all over the country, but all over all over the world as well. And you had space to think about what that all meant for what you did and what you could do. So there was a bit of sort of academic learning involved in it. There was some practical application of that in a project. And then there was, a, the, for me, the most significant bit of that was all of the connecting to other people and building a network uh, of people who are out there challenging and thinking about how to. So yeah, so that was a great. That was a fun. For me, that was the that's the, been the pivotal moment in my career, I suppose. I think if I hadn't done that, I'd still be working clinically somewhere, probably. Sean, you you've uh, helped champion and, and really lead the person-centred movement in Scotland, and now you know you're invited to speak about this all over the world, and a lot of people are looking to Scotland's example. How how did that evolve? So I suppose on a personal level, actually, it started with that fellowship year because I I. And in that year, I we've been doing some technical quality improvement work around the, the sort of care process, like the ventilator-acquired pneumonia work and central line insertion work, and so on. But during that year, what I decided to focus on as a project was, uh, well, part of the patient safety program was to on the every ward round you would set some clear uh, technical care goals for the patient, which you would check in at periods through the day to see how you were getting on with achieving those goals, so weaning the oxygen levels or pressure support or whatever it might have been on the ventilator or other things, mobilize, you know, these types of things. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if we asked the uh, patients and families what their goals were each day and uh, whether that was something that would be um, doable, whether they even had any goals, whether they were just so paralyzed by the, you know, the difficult situation they were in and so on. So for me, that's where it kind of, that uh, journey began for me around put that focus on people, the people, as in all the people, but very particularly on on people who we call patients um, and their and their families, and from that, I kind of connected into another group, uh, you know, wider group of people in the quality improvement networks who were thinking in that way. Um, we had this sort of daily personal goals setting process that we developed in ICU, and we found there were lots of um, actually there were lots of times when what we wanted to do from a technical care perspective aligned with what the person wanted to do and I think you know so it might have been that somebody wanted to go and buy a newspaper from the shop and they'd been stuck on a ventilator for weeks on end and we thought well we want to get them out and mobilize them and, and sort of lift their spirits a bit um, that was one of our care technical care goals well now we're, so we both kind of want to do the same thing now so actually then we all combined forces and worked together with the person and their family and everyone else around to achieve that goal. So it kind of felt like a very worthy thing to do, but a very worthwhile thing to do, but actually also very good in just terms of clinical outcomes and and the quality of care that was delivered. So from that, we kind of, it wasn't called what matters to you then, but basically we were asking people each day, what matters to you? What do you want to do today? What's important for you today? And uh, 
Maureen Bisignano uh, came along later on at the one of the big quality improvement forums and said, you know, what we really need to do in healthcare is we need to shift the focus from what's the matter with you to what matters to you. And I'm like, yes, that's that's a good way of saying what it is that we've been trying to do. And uh, there was a bunch of us, Jennifer Rogers, um, uh, the chief nurse now, she was a charge nurse like me at the time in pediatrics at, at the RAH. And um, we started to, and she'd done the fellowship but very shortly after I'd done it. So uh, we kind of got started to get our heads together nationally. Um, and this was before we were even working in, in national roles. Um, and, and, and then it kind of grew from there. So it was, and actually it was very hard, it was really hard work at the beginning because people were like, yeah, that sounds, um, sounds quite nice uh, to do. And I can see that that's, that's lovely to be able to do that. But really we're busy, you know, and we need to focus on this evidence-based sort of care and medicine and, and do the things that we need to do to people to make them better. But I think there's been a growing realization over the years, that actually, uh, over the recent, more recent years, that um, we've kind of maxed out on that paradigm. Um, the perform, you know, performance management, uh, the sort of, uh, it's maybe even wider than, it is wider than healthcare. It's a societal level thing. It's about the philosophical approach to, um, to life, you know, the sort of reductionist materialist type, uh, philosophy. Um, we've kind of probably, well, there's still things to be achieved and to be accomplished using that approach, but actually we need to think more broadly, I think. And uh, the what matters to you approach is about how do we how do we open up that more, uh, without any religious overtones, that more sort of spiritual, humanistic, um, uh, holistic approach to how we do the things we do, whether that's healthcare, whether it's banking, whatever the thing might be, you know, this, this, this focus on people, relationships, interactions, the things that really matter in life. I think is um, is gaining momentum, and uh, that's kind of happened coincidentally alongside. I think as as society is sort of learning well, or coming up against barriers, trying to use the old ways of doing things. You know, whatever it might be, targets and performance management and healthcare. You know, we there's um, it might get you from awful to okay using that type of approach, but it's never going to get you to brilliant. Um, I think to go from okay to brilliant, you need to use um, a more relational approach that's uh, that's not focused on those sort of telling people what to do type approaches. But I think the bottom line, the thing it boils down to here is to keep asking the question, whose needs are we meeting here? You know, what's the deeper meaning and purpose of what we're doing here? And then to wrap around that, the power of, of kindness and compassion, uh, listening deeply, you know, listening with the intent to really understand what's going on, whether that's for your colleagues or whether that's for the people that we're providing care and support for. And what, what would be one small thing we could do today to make things a bit better? You know, if, again, I, if I come back to if, if everybody was doing that all of the time, the cumulative effect of that would be, would be enormous, I think. So one, one, of the, one of the things that you've especially been leading on recently and really was felt as though there was a lot of momentum around it was around person-centered visiting, and obviously, just now we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's massive challenges to delivering sort of person-centered care. How, how do you think we continue live that person-centered care throughout this time? Hmm. So I suppose I think that, you know, there's always challenges, aren't there? You know, in the best of times, there's challenges. And in the worst of times, and this is, there's challenges. And this is an example of, you know, um, a less good time is probably one of the worst of times, uh, uh, you know, for many people. And um, the first 
point would be that when times are difficult, that's the most important time to be focused on people, relationships, and understanding and listening to what really matters to people, whether that's people that you're working with uh, as colleagues or whether that's um, the people that we're, we're, we're caring for or supporting or uh, trying to help along. I have to say, I was, pretty, I was pretty downcast, actually, you know, when all the visiting restrictions started to roll back at the beginning of this period, it was kind of, <laughs> oh, man, we've been fight I've been trying to do this for 10 years. And just as you really feel you've hit a sort of a, a tipping point where all the, you know, all the sort of big organization, big healthcare, you know, NHS healthcare organizations got into sort of at the board level said, yes, this is what we're doing. And then, you know, within, within weeks, uh, it's all rolling back and actually we had to do everything we could to stop them saying no visitors absolutely ever or whatsoever in any circumstances and I think actually we we set an example I think in the four countries of the UK we the guidance that we issued from from our team you know through Jason and um, Fiona Jason our national clinical director extraordinaire television personality of late and uh, and Fiona McQueen our chief nurse um, they you know, the other nations of the UK actually changed their guidance based on that, you know, because we said there are still times where it will matter more to people to stay connected to their loved ones than the risks that are associated with contracting an infection, perhaps. And, and we can take precautions to protect other people around them, you know, staff coming into work, still come into work. So if it's safe for staff to come in, taking the appropriate precautions, it must still be safe to bring a family member in, taking the appropriate precautions. Um, so I think that was, for me, that was a great, that was a really uh, heartening thing that we could still find a way to be compassionate and kind. There's some great innovation that's happened, you know, and I guess we might have an opportunity to talk about that a little bit more as we go along, but there's some great innovation that's happened around this difficulty, this challenge to, to, to keep people connected as well. So yeah, so whilst it's been difficult and challenging, I think that the the way people have dealt with it and found, managed to find ways around the the restrictions in a you know in a positive way in a in a good way not not um, being irresponsible but to take seriously the challenge that's there but to find a way to keep people connected has been really heartening and gives me hope that when we come to you know uh, hopefully when we come to the, these things um, passing by that we will be able to get back to where we were quite quickly. Thanks, Sean. So you've touched on some of the innovation that's going on at the moment. And we know that you're actually joining us today from the NHS Louisa Jordan in Glasgow. So what what do you hope we can learn from the challenges we are currently facing to take into the future? So I think on a, on a practical level, um, the importance on connecting to one another. You know, so we've seen certainly as we've been setting up how we might like to run NHS Louisa Jordan here, for example, uh, if, it's, if it's needed in terms of A, how we look after the people who come to work here, and then B, how we support those people to care compassionately and effectively and safely for the, the people who come here to receive care. And I think there's been a much, because of the challenges out there around the, the, the pandemic, there's been a much stronger focus in my experience than there normally is on how do we look after one another? You know, how do we, so for example, we've got this lovely little process that we've lined up to work here called check in, check through, check out. So every day we check in with each other at the beginning of the shift, we buddy up, you buddy up with someone on your shift, you check in and say, how are things for you today? How are you doing? How are you coping? Is there anything you want to share with me? 
partway through the day, you check in again, you check through. And at the end of the day, you check out how you're doing, everything all right when you go, do you need me to contact anyone for you? And so on. So it's just a very simple, practical approach. Now, that doesn't, that hasn't routinely happened in, in my working experience up until now. And that's, so that's a really positive thing that's come out of this. And we should do that, actually. So that's got to, that should keep going after, afterwards. And so that's, that'll certainly be something I'll be, I'll be talking about. The way people have gone you know, above and beyond what you would normally expect to make sure that people stay connected to their loved ones has really been also a, a standout for me. So the virtual visiting, as we've called it, as it's kind of developed over the past um, few weeks. So people bringing in their, their old iPads and getting them cleaned up and sorted out by IT so they can be used to FaceTime people's families with them. So just, just some, some great examples. That, that would be, that would be the, the, the one for me. And so again, thinking about that, well, why don't we do that anyway? Why don't we let people FaceTime their families and, and speak to them? And maybe we have the, their smartphone or we have a ward iPad that's on FaceTime when the ward round comes around, you know, so your family can be involved in the ward round if you want them to be involved in the ward round type of thing. You know, some really challenging stuff there for, for our existing culture. But why, again, why, why wouldn't we do those things? So we can... I'm sure we can think, I'm sure people will think of reasons why not, but there's far more reasons to do it than not to do it. Um, so those would be two standout things for me, the way we've really focused strongly on looking after each other and also that, you know, making sure that people stay connected, recognizing that uh, that individual that's in front of you sitting in the chair or in a bed or wherever they might be, they're not a kind of a, a discrete sort of isolated island of individuality. They're actually a human being that exists in a social network of connections uh, of people that uh, are loved and very dear to them and matter very much and uh, they would want to be potentially involved in all sorts of dif difficult decisions especially when they're in a you know a difficult time at their life if you're in hospital you know things are obviously challenging for you why and that's when you need your your loved ones most so yeah there's two there's a couple of things for me that i i hope will continue and i'll, I'll certainly be doing some work to try and make sure they continue uh, beyond this beyond this period as you say, there is great concern for staff welfare just now with the increased work pressure and personal safety concerns. Mm. How do you think we can ensure that the COVID-19 pandemic drives more people into healthcare rather than deterring them or leading to loss of the workforce? Mm. Yeah, so that's an interesting one because I, my sort of gut feeling, and I haven't seen any sort of hard data, if you like, to back this up, uh, is that the, the COVID nineteen pandemic has been a has been a has had a positive effect on people's perception of the health service and healthcare workers. Um, you know, the, the there's been amazing public support. I've had so much free stuff in the last few weeks. You know, free raises, uh, discounted chocolate uh, meals, all sorts of things. And I'm like, wow, this is great. So there's, I think it's kind of reminded people what a special thing the NHS is particularly, but also generally speaking, what, you know, how important healthcare and care workers as, as well, not to forget them, are, um, and how much they're probably, probably are, you know, society as a whole undervalues people and the people who work in those professions and jobs and, uh, and those professions and jobs in themselves. So, you know, I have to, I, I, I get, if I'm at home on a Thursday evening when my neighbours come out and clap and I'm out there, I feel, in fact, I can feel it now, I feel emotional thinking about them out there you know, giving you the thumbs up and waving to you and saying thank you for what you do. And um, that's amazing. Um, you know, you could probably give me a pay cut and I'll still be happy doing the job I'm doing uh, with that type of stuff um, going on. So I think that's been amazing. Um, 
so I, I think that this has focused people's minds a bit and increased their appreciation of, of healthcare. So I think then thinking specifically about those people, so UK working in intensive care at the minute, that's pretty physically and emotionally demanding to be in working in an ICU at a, a time like this. And um, I think just knowing that you're appreciated is an important thing. That's a, a first step. But then some of the practical support that's around that. And I know, for example, again, thinking about what we've been doing here in preparation for if if, if NHS Louisa Jordan opens, and I know some of the other boards have been doing around making sure there is support for people um, to tap into as and when they need it. There's kind of the small things that are done routinely, like the check-in, check-through, check-out type process I was describing there, but there's also maybe a sort of a tiered approach where, you know, if you need a, a, somewhere to go and decompress after a shift, you can do that, or if you just want to phone someone up and have a chat, there's the option to do that. And I think that the there has been more focus on that. And I hope that continues, you know, thinking about things that we'd like to continue. I hope that more sort of organized structural approach to um, supporting people working in healthcare continues. And I think that's one of the things that's important at keeping people in the workforce um, uh, as well. I think, well, I suppose one last thing on this, that there's also a kind of a, you hear it sometimes as kind of perception that compassion is and kindness uh, is zero sum. You know, so actually you give compassion, you know, you, if you behave in a, a way which is compassionate, and I use the word compassion very deliberately, not em empathic, but compassionately, you know, you, you are, you feel emotionally connected and you want to do something. I think that's perhaps a, a crude definition of compassion. So that giving of yourself in that way, that, that empties you of compassion. And actually, I think from what I understand, the evidence that I've been reading it is that the more you do of that, the more it fills you up. Um, so actually, the more opportunity you have to be compassionate and you are supported to be compassionate and take the time, perhaps, to be compassionate, actually, that improves your resilience. It reduces the instance of, of emotional burnout for healthcare workers. So for me, I think that another thing that I think is very important to keep people in the healthcare system and attract people into the healthcare system is to, is to provide opportunity for people to be compassionate to do what they feel is the right thing and to have the time to do that and be supported to do that. And when you do that, actually, you have a more engaged, resilient workforce that will, will be able to, to, to give of their best. Throughout hearing about your career journey and some of your, the lessons that you've learned, I think a lot of those lessons are applicable not just to health and care, but across any, any sector. Mm. I suppose with the benefit of hindsight now, what advice would you give to your, your younger self Listen more, <laughs> work a bit harder at school, maybe. <laughs> I had to do quite a lot after I left school to, uh, I think that's a, probably a boy thing, isn't it? A lot of boys, uh, they mature a bit more slowly than girls. And uh, uh, so I had to go back and do, but then maybe that's part, That's. I mean, I wouldn't be the same person if I hadn't have done what I've done. So I think I sort of do that. I, I say some of these things with caution because the reason you end up, and I'm not unhappy with where I am in terms of, you know, my life generally and relationships and all of those sorts of things. And so, and I've made some terrible mistakes in the past and done some awful things and all, as everybody has, but that rich tapestry of experiences and all of those things makes you who you are. And so actually, if I didn't make some of the mistakes I've made, I wouldn't have learned some of the lessons I've learned and wouldn't be, you know, so it's kind of difficult. But uh, yeah, I would certainly like to listen to listen a bit more to my um, to my dear dad, uh, I think, although I still had opportunity to listen to him a bit later on. Uh, but I wish I'd listened a bit more when I was younger and uh, and work a bit harder at school. That would be the two. <laughs> Is there, is there one golden bit of advice that your dad has given you? 
Well, my, my dad was, he always said to me that you don't get something for nothing. That was the main thing, you know, so if, it, and it was about sacrifice that was, you know, so I never wanted to work when I was at school. I was always in trouble at school, never wanted to work. And um, I did eventually have to do that work to get something. So that was a really important lesson that, you know, to get something, you normally have to give up something, you know, so you give up your time and your energies to learn, to, you know, to study, for example, to pass an exam. You can't just do nothing and expect to pass. Well, some people get away with that, but most people don't. You know, you have to give up something to get that exam. So you forego something in the present to receive something in the future. And for me, that was a really powerful. That's certainly a lesson I repeatedly pass on to my own children. That you know, like, to get to get something good in the future, you you will have to give up something now. And that's not necessarily a in a in a horrible sort of way give up something now. But you just need to knuckle down and do some work now to get something good in the future. And that's how life works generally. And uh, that would be the, perhaps well, the nugget for me. Quite yeah. timely with the difficult times that we all face and all are sacrificing just now. Yeah, absolutely, that's yeah. Full, full message mm -hmm. of yeah. what can lie in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time today, Sean. So we've been asking everybody that we've interviewed so far on the podcast what they would have been in another life. And we've got half a Broadway cast now wow. so far from... <laughs> From everyone so far so what would you have liked to have done in another life certainly not have been an actor or a singer or anything like that i don't think um I, well i st when i started out my so i love the outdoors i spend a lot of, you know when i'm not at work i'm out in the hills or i'm w walking on my love kayaking and so on cycling and i think uh, i started out my career when i left school was working in forestry and uh, i kind of had this idea i'd like to be a countryside ranger or something like that so i think in another in another life i might have stuck with that and uh, i'd be living in a cottage up in the highlands somewhere looking after some countryside um i still kind of think i might quite like to try and do that at some point i'm not sure i'm running out of time a little bit but i've still got a bit of time hopefully so i think it'd have been some kind of um to take it to an extreme level, maybe actually, I, you know, you see these programs about, you know, uh, taming Alaska and so on, living in a cabin in the wilderness with the bears. I think that would be my, you know, that's my kind of romantic uh, ideal to, to do something like that. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> here I am. And here I am for now. So that's all good.